This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel here with my co-host Dan Favalli. And we have a lot to talk about in the wake of all the changes made to rosters, both through the NBA trade deadline and the ensuing buyout market that is still in progress. So we'll be going over some most of those moves uh, and and what they have done to the NBA finals chase in both conferences. Um, We'll figure out if we think that massive swings have have occurred or if these are more minor transactions that might seem bigger than they are because of the names the magnitude of the names involved but before we get into any of that dan how's it going it's going great because i was able to tweet out the link this time while you were doing that intro it is done it's out there to the masses i'm proud of that i'm proud of how are how are you doing I'm good. I'm coming off a fantastic morning. Sue the T-Rex, the exhibit, is in Denver, where I'm at. So we took our our two-year-old, who is obsessed with dinosaurs, to see this gigantic, full-sized T-Rex with skin eating an Edmontosaurus in its mouth. And he was obsessed and didn't want to leave. And we spent like two hours in the museum, and he absolutely loved it. So coming off a a great morning. Is he still like, are dinosaurs like hardcore his thing? Oh, absolutely. It is astonishing how many different kinds of dinosaurs he knows. And if I mispronounce any of them, he will correct me. It is really, really humiliating to hear a toddler say, actually, daddy, that is a Diplodocus, not a Brachiosaurus. Uh, your, your kid is a genius. That is not something that I would ever have doubted. Look, let's get started with uh, just before we get to our we have a ton of questions for the mailbag. But what you want to just segue straight from dinosaurs into an NBA dinosaur with Andre Drummond? Yes, let's do that. What did you look? That's a big question, though. What do you think of Lamarcus Aldridge to the uh, the Nets and Andre Drummond to the Lakers? It seems like uh, Gorgie Jang. It doesn't seem like he signed with the Spurs. Austin Rivers. It seems like is headed to the Bucks. I do believe we tend to overrate what buyout candidates are like how much of an impact they're going to have, but I'm curious as to whether you especially like or dislike any of these, or is there, do you spot one that you think is going to be a real difference? Yeah, I I actually think the Drummond one is the biggest difference maker for me, which I didn't really anticipate saying, but I, I see the benefits there. I don't think it's a perfect fit. I don't think he's this game changing title race, altering addition that they're making midway through the season, but I see the benefits because he is an incredible rebounder, which makes a difference in any game. He, When he's engaged, he can be a decent defender around the basket. He has a little switchability out on the perimeter. He can handle the ball at the top of the key and initiate offense from different places. None of that is that exciting, but the biggest factor is the physicality that he brings, and in doing so, the, the physical toll that he can take away from Anthony Davis and LeBron James, who have not stayed healthy this season. So like, even if he's only playing... 
15 to 20 minutes per game, but he's matching up against a big body and ensuring that Davis isn't going to have to do that. Look, we've talked for years about how Anthony Davis is best at the five, and that's where he's going to play in the biggest moments. But just the ability to have that other option, especially because Marcus Gasol hasn't stayed healthy, I do think that matters. With the, the, the LaMarcus Aldridge signing, I don't get that one. Like, Aldridge is clearly not the same player. And what need does he fill for the Nets? Like, okay, he's a good mid-range shooter. He can occasionally take some threes. He's not a good defender. So that just kind of compounds the weakness that already exists. And why is he going to get touches on a team that has Kyrie Irving, James Harden, and Kevin Durant when they're all healthy? Like, I just, I don't see how that one makes much sense. And it's also, it's just like they signed two people that probably hurt their defense more than anything. And they're still going to be... I've talked about leaning into the offense, but that's different. Like that means getting like spot up shooters, not other ball dominant big men. Right. And you know, they, they are playing Blake Griffin with Nick Claxton right now. I don't think that's going to last long-term. They've done fine with it, but if that's the way you're going to make sure that Nick Claxton is still in the rotation by, you are going to see some Blake Griffin at the four. They just have so many options with, when you look at their final five at full strength, we know it's going to be KD. Kyrie, James Harden. I would argue Joe Harris should just be penciled in as the fourth. Right in Sharpie. It, but I don't know that they will. You know, they could be, if they decide to play, you know, Blake Griffin with Claxton, or if they decide to play Jeff Green with Claxton, uh, they do just, if we pencil Joe Harris in, though, there are just so many different ways they could go. Does LaMarcus or Blake or Claxton or DJ or Bruce Brown or Jeff Green closes that fifth? There are six different options. And yeah, that allows you to fiddle with matchups. But I just wonder. Having Blake and both Blake and LaMarcus Aldridge there, I know they're not the same players, but two things, and one was pointed out by the Athletics set part now, that these bigger name buyout candidates, they tend to get leeway with their new teams or the teams try and see if they're still that player that they used to be, which can often be detriment to the team. And that makes me wonder just how much playing time is LaMarcus going to get and Blake going to get long-term. And then are you going to be comfortable enough to have both of them on the bench during crunch time, or is it going to be a situation where we can always expect at least one of them to be on the floor sort of as like, you know, to be diplomatic about it. And I just don't know if that's okay. I hope that's not the case. Cause I think the ideal closing lineup is Kyrie Irving, James Harden, Joe Harris, Kevin Durant, and Nick Claxton. Like he I, gives you the most defensive firepower. He gives you the most energy. I, I just don't know what Griffin or Aldridge adds at this point that wasn't already on the roster. Like, yay, more big names. We can make social media graphics about how loaded with stars this Brooklyn Nets team is. But like, these are stars that have kind of withered up. Yeah, I'm with you. I actually think that there's a chance. Jang, if he's going to play in San Antonio, they have minutes that they can give away at the five. Um, I know they have, you know, Pirtle's really good. They have Eubanks. They have um, Samanich. I don't know. They do tend to play him at the four. I think for the most part. So I actually think it could be Austin rivers that has like the biggest impact. Just I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. He look, he tapered off a lot in New York, but he was really good at the start of the season when they were dealing with some injuries and he was dealing with injuries himself. I believe just someone, another guy who can dribble. I think you trust him to run an offense or just to pick and roll more than a Bryn Forbes. And he's going to give you more defensively to where when I look at the bucks right now, I think their closing five ends up being Giannis, Drew, Middleton. And then there are really two open spots there. I think maybe given the way that they want to try to defend and create more portability, 
that you can throw PJ Tucker, but it's going to be PJ Tucker or Brooke Lopez. There still seems to be like that fifth spot open where is it going to be Dante DiVincenzo? Could it he be? He hasn't Brent impressed Ford? to the extent that we need him to. Yeah. He, um, I think defensively, he's probably the best of the three options between Forbes and Austin Rivers, but I could see Austin Rivers closing some meaningful games for Milwaukee. Especially because I think they would err towards that end of the spectrum because Austin Rivers can and will create his own shot. It doesn't always happen efficiently. It doesn't always happen when you want it to, but he can create his own shot and he's willing to do so. And given the struggles they've had in each of the last two postseasons, when defenses compress around Giannis and they need other players to get their own looks, I can see Milwaukee erring on that side. Yeah, I'd be with it. The thing that I'm interested in post-trade deadline, and it was a busy deadline. I, I saw people complaining that it wasn't a good deadline. There were 16 deals from midnight, March 25th, through that 3 p.m. So there was a lot of action. I do Involving think Involving like a 23 teams, right? Yeah, it was, it was basically pretty much most of the league, more than two-thirds of the league made a, a deal. And so this is the, the question as we get into this mailbag that I'm going to use as the trigger for the larger title race discussion. It comes from uh, Meyer Rothbaum. Meyer, uh, he asked, how do you see the Eastern Conference regular season panning out? And just looking sort of at... The larger question of, though, how do you think that the trade deadline impacted the title race at all? If we went through the top five, top seven contenders, like how would you be ranking those at the moment? In the East or in general? Are we talking about the top five or seven contenders? Let's break it up by conference there. Yeah, and we'll I use think some, so. We'll start with the East. Um, I'm not sure it changed that much in the East. Lou Williams to the Hawks gives them more firepower off the bench, which is an area they've struggled in since Trey Young arrived, just creating that same level of offensive potency when he's not on the floor. But I still don't think they're at the level of the 76ers, the Nets, or the Bucks at full strength. I think that the biggest impact is probably that you can make more convincing arguments that the Celtics and the Heat, who have both been these middling 500-level teams, are going to re-enter that picture because Evan Fournier is a great pickup for, for the Celtics. Victor Oladipo, if he's healthy, could make a big impact on the, on the Heat. Neither of those are really guaranteed to come to fruition, but I think that there are more compelling cases to be made that all of a sudden this Eastern Conference race is more of a six or seven team race for those top spots than just those three teams and then a big drop-off before everyone else. You think there's going to be that stark of a drop-off? I think there was. I I think that that gap could be closed a little bit, but I think that there is still a, a gap between them. Like there, there's a pretty clear cut delineation between those tiers, even after the trade market. So what will you have? What's your? Can you just run through that first tier again for me? Yeah, I think the 76ers, the Nets, and the Bucks are the obvious class of the Eastern Conference. I think that the Hawks, the Celtics, the Heat, maybe even the Chicago Bulls would belong in that second tier. You can throw the Knicks in, that, in at the bottom if you want to, though I think we still have questions about the sustainability of the defense, even though they deserve credit for maintaining it this far into the season. I might be willing to throw Miami in there now, post-Oladipo. It feels like he has not been good this year, but they feel like the team that would unlock him. I guess you can't put them there now. They have the, they might have the most potential of any team that's, that's left. Uh, they're to crack that tier. That feels like a distinct possibility for them more so than, you know, I don't think the Celtics after Evan Fournier get there, uh, the decision to trade Daniel Tice, that's still just, they needed to figure out another way. Not a fan. If they were going to duck the tax, 
like you needed to figure out another way to do it. Um, that's just or just like don't duck the tax if you want to compete. You know, maybe. I the reality though is that they were going to because you have Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and Kemba, and like next year once Tatum's deal kicks in, so I get it. But there had to be another. If you were going to do it, there had to be another way. Right. Uh, I'm I'm totally with you. I, I agree with your Eastern Conference tiers. I think at the top, though, between Philly, Brooklyn, and Milwaukee, I don't. I feel like there's this tendency to say, well, when Brooklyn's at full strength, they're just going to be the number one. I can talk myself, and I might even go as far as saying I like both Philly and Milwaukee in a playoff series at full strength more than I do Brooklyn. And the defense really does bother me. I know it's the – I'm not trying to downplay having KD, Kyrie, and Harden. There's the element of they're going to score so much at all at all minutes, all seconds of the game, that it doesn't matter. Still, when you look at how those teams can match up with them, and Milwaukee in particular is interesting here now too, just having Chris Middleton, Giannis, uh, you have Dante DiVincenzo there, you have Drew Holiday, I can't believe I didn't name him, like close enough to that. And then in Philly, you have Thibel and Simmons with Embiid on the back line. Danny Green doesn't suck on defense either. So those are two teams I think can give them problems where no, Simmons is probably the only one of anybody who's going to shut down one of the stars, if he, if that's even a thing, I don't know if you can put Giannis has never been just, he's going to shut down one guy. That's just not how he plays. He's maybe more of a Drew. shutting down the team than one guy. Yeah. And maybe Drew, but I would say that Simmons is probably the like best individual defender of that bunch, mm-hmm. if that makes mm-hmm. any sense. So if you were to tell me that all those teams are at full strength as currently constructed, I would, I'd probably be picking Philly in seven, Milwaukee in seven over Brooklyn. I'm right there with you. I know that I've shared my concerns about Brooklyn in previous episodes, and I think that those were compounded by these buyout additions where like adding Blake Griffin and LaMarcus Aldridge doesn't necessarily make them worse, but it increases the volatility of the outcomes where, okay, you have a marginal benefit on offense, but you're also leaning further into this offensive style at the expense of the defense and without really making the offense better because, again, they're not spot-up guys who complement the incumbent stars perfectly. So if you have these off-offensive nights when you almost feel obligated to give minutes to Aldridge and Blake Griffin at the expense of Nick Claxton and the other guys on that roster who can make some sort of defensive impact – that worries me. Like, yeah, it increases their ceiling, but I also think that it lowers the floor more than it increases the ceiling. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's probably a good way to frame it or at least a justifiable way to frame it. So would it surprise me at all if Brooklyn emerged from the East? Absolutely not. Like it's so easy to see the Nets just going on an absolute scorching tear through the entire conference and emerging through without losing a game. It's also very feasible for them to lose to one of these other great teams. And I think it's more feasible that they lose. It's not necessarily more likely to happen, but it's even easier to justify. Do you see any other team that could crack the actual, they're a legitimate championship contender in the East? Is there another team for you that you think has a puncher's chance of doing that? Um, I think the Heat could, just because that once once the rotations compress in the postseason and Eric Spolstra stops experimenting and starts seeing the fruit of that experimentation, the heat are always more dangerous. If Oladipo is a good fit, if Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo are healthy, that's a whole lot of top end talent right there. And we already saw the kind of run that the heat could go on last season when they advanced to the finals. Like they, they do have those 
crunch time shot makers, even if they aren't always efficient over the course of the regular season. So I think they'd be my number one answer there. And then it would be between the Hawks and the Celtics on the cusp of entering that. I think that even though the Hawks have been a disappointment this season and at the time of recording before they play the Nuggets on Sunday night, they're 23 and 22, but they've been dealing with so many injuries throughout the season and we still haven't really gotten a full picture of what they look like when fully healthy for an extended period of time. There is still enough talent there that I could see it somehow, but I'm more hesitant to put them into that group. Yeah, Miami's like the only one for me. I know Boston's really heavy at the top. I just, I, they feel like they're still a player away. Uh, it does. And I, and I don't know who that player, Evan Fournier is going to help them out a bunch, to be clear. Like just to give them another ball handler, a shooter, someone to create their own shot. I would agree with you that it's Miami. So looking at the West then, how does your contender hierarchy work out there? And there are probably, look, I think you can talk yourself into at least five teams being contenders here. Right. I mean, I, I know you're talking about the Jazz, the Suns, the Clippers, the Lakers, and the Nuggets. So within that group, like what really changed? We, we talked about Drummond at the top. I think that could be a, a marginal benefit in the playoff, uh, when, come playoff time. Uh, the Aaron Gordon move for the Nuggets is, is the biggest difference maker. And I could see how that move alone could push Denver up a few pegs in that hierarchy wherever you had Denver going in. Um, it's still such a jumbled mess that I'm not really sure. Like it, it feels difficult to order those five teams both before and after the deadline. And I'm not sure that Aaron Gordon alone does enough to like convincingly change it. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. So for me, it does only because, and I, there, there's going to be noise in here, but the Jokic-Michael Porter Jr. front court has been clicking. and not Really good. Not just offensively either. The defensive numbers on that combination, uh, it's only 612 possessions, but Denver ranks in the 85th percentile of points allowed per 100 possessions. Uh, opponents are not hitting their threes in this situation. So that's something to consider. But if you're that high across this big of it, like 612 possessions is, is fairly, for a two-man combination, maybe not, but it's like significant enough for me to think, okay, this is suspicious with how stingy it is, but do we have to start talking about it being sustainable? And now you're looking at it where maybe you have Monte Morris, Jamal Murray, Will Barton as your other three, and you look at that and you go, okay, there's one above average defender within that trio. Now you throw an Aaron Gordon in there. So it's Jamal Murray, Will Barton, Aaron Gordon, plus Porter and Jokic is your best five-man unit. But you can mix and match it where you know maybe it's not Barton, maybe it's uh, Monte Morris is still there. Maybe you go P.J. Dozier if you want to go super big or something. They have a lot more options now to go up against some of these tougher Western Conference teams. And I think specifically, yeah, you're probably still going to run into the, um, if you were to play Portland, you know, who's going to defend Dame? Is that, that's not going to be Aaron Gordon. And that's exactly how I was going to respond. Same with like Devin Booker and Chris Paul. Uh, if, if they end up playing yeah. Phoenix or Donovan Mitchell and, and Mike Conley, like the backcourt combinations are maybe more concerning without Gary Harris. But I think you have the more important position covered now with Aaron Gordon, where he's going to give you, you know, three, three, four, five. So um, if I was to go through really quickly how I think the, the contention thing, and look, the thing that I also want to mention here, 
I don't know how to view the Lakers anymore, LeBron and AD, because when you're ranking contenders, this has to be a just looking at who has the best chance, I think, first and foremost, to come out of their conference, because getting to the finals is a huge part of winning the championship, and that's the first huge step. If the Lakers are going to be healthy, I guess they're still the favorite, but right now we know LeBron's going to be out another month at least, and they're fourth in the West. They are, you know, five games away from playing territory. Oh, oh, six and a half, excuse me. So I think they'll stay out of, or no, they're only, they are only four and a half games out of playing territory, which would be the seventh spot. I just don't know if it matters more for them that they wind up there, or if it matters more for a team like the Jazz or the Suns that now all of a sudden they might have to play the Lakers in the first round. So if the Lakers are at full strength, I still think they're the best team. My second team is the Suns. My third team is the Nuggets. My fourth team is the Jazz. My fifth team is the Clippers as of right now. And I feel like I might be undervaluing the Clippers and their their crunch time offense has gotten better, but they've still been a mess defensively there. I don't know that Rondo fixes enough of what they ail them, even when you're looking at him through a playoff lens. And I feel very odd, if stupid, to put a team that has both Kawhi Leonard and Paul George to the idea. And I know Paul George has struggled, but those two players, like you want those two players in the, the postseason. The idea of them are the perfect postseason building block archetypes. It feels really weird to have the Clippers at fifth, doesn't it? Right. And a part of that is putting the Jazz fourth is disrespectful almost because they have the best record in the league right now. I'm just, I think there's their offense will be fine. They just, they have an element of the same problem that the Nuggets did of who is defending these wings. They have it, I guess they, they have it fine in the backcourt or with smaller wings because you have Royce O'Neal. But who is going to defend those more, even those more just athletic, bigger guards, those bigger wings? Could wind up being an issue for them. You don't trust Harrison Ilyasova in that role? He can take some charges. Matt Thomas, maybe? Throw him. I actually thought that was a fine pickup because he's under contract for next season. But yeah. So I feel stupid putting them fourth, just as poor, just as Bailey's putting the, the Lakers fifth. I'm tempted to put the Nuggets second. And look, if the Lakers, the AD stuff is weird. You have Achilles mentioned in there. They say he's like two in weeks and change away. Maybe he'll be fine. I'm tempted to put the, the Nuggets or the Suns up top. And if I had to. If I had to say who do I think is going to be other than the Lakers, the biggest threat, I'm still all in on the Suns. And that's, they didn't make any moves at the deadline. I think Torrey Craig help, helps their depth out a little bit, and he's actually been playing. They have questions up front with what are you going to do if Aiton's inconsistent? Can you get away with Dario Sharch at the, at the five in those situations? Their guard depth, if you don't trust Cameron Payne, they're, they're just, they're question marks anywhere, but. I look at that roster. It is deep. They can defend a bunch of different ways. They're, they're long range shot making, roller coastery. They're the team that I'm watching that as the, I don't know if you can call them a dark horse when they're second in the West, but of the non Lakers group, uh, the, the Suns and the Nuggets for sure. Those have to be the two teams I think you're watching, maybe even more so than the Jazz at this point, which again is not meant to be disrespectful. It's just that inkling that I have. I think it's important just to emphasize once again that when we're talking about these five teams, like even if they're fifth out of the five, these are the obvious title contenders where we would not be even remotely surprised by them making it to the NBA Finals. So, like, take whatever perceived disrespect there is with that major grain of salt. As for my order, I think I, I can't doubt the full strength the full strength Lakers at this point. Like, I don't know if they're going to get there, but if we are operating under the assumption that LeBron James and Anthony Davis are actually good to go, I think they have to be in that number one spot just based on what we learned about them last year. Uh, my number two is still the Jazz. I'm just, I'm still really convinced by the two way abilities of that team, even if it it didn't really need to make 
major moves to the deadline. I mean, a 34 and 11 at this point, a 34 and 11 record at this stage of the season speaks for itself. And they, they have been the best team in basketball this season. Uh, I'm between the Suns and the Nuggets for my third pick. I think I'm going to lean slightly towards the Nuggets and then have the Suns as a hesitant fourth and the Clippers at a, I can't believe they're in fifth place, fifth place. So you have a lot of hesitance all over the place. Yeah. I mean, I think they're all grouped so closely together. But this isn't, this isn't a, we're creating a narrative by grouping five teams together into this top tier in the West. It's like, this is legitimately like a 1A, 1B, 1C, 1D, 1E situation. So I think hesitancy is inherent to that situation. I think this question sort of ties into the title discussion. It comes from Swan Suarez. Who is an underrated MVP candidate who should be higher up in the rankings? I, I struggle with that question because I feel like underrated MVP, MVP candidate is like a little bit of an oxymoron. Um, <laughs> right. My, my, I'll, I'll go with my gut answer then, which is Giannis. I don't, I don't think that he gets talked about enough in the discussion as he should because he's the two-time reigning MVP. But from a purely objective standpoint, he and Jokic should be the front runners right now. I, yeah, I, I would pick Giannis too a little bit that he hasn't received enough conversation because of voter fatigue, it feels like, and people still harp on what he can't do. And that's fair, but he's been carrying lineups more often without Brooke Lopez in them. So it's not necessarily he's always the center, but if it's Giannis and Bobby Portis, like that's a huge difference. And now it'll be Giannis and PJ Tucker for a lot of those stints, which you, you like better on paper if PJ Tucker is going to be PJ Tucker. I think Dame has also been the one where it felt like, People have made the argument for Harden, LeBron, even Giannis to a point, Jokic and Embiid. Dame deserves to be up there where the margin is, yes, the Blazers are sixth in the West, but they have an identical record to the Nuggets. And he helped them navigate this stretch without Yusuf Nurkic or CJ McCollum. And their offense falls off a cliff when he's not on the floor. He continues to be probably the clutchest player in basketball when you just look at his shooting splits in crunch time. And the Blazers are like 19 and four when they play games in the clutch. That's, I think, it, I believe it's the last time I checked. I can look it up really quickly is the highest winning percentage in the NBA. And yeah, they are winning a lot of games closely, but they're winning those games. And so you wish they would play better against those uh, above 500 teams. Still, when you look at how well they are with him on the court, and if you, I don't want to use, I hate the word narrative, but just no, it, use it. it. It matters in this conversation. It shouldn't, well, and, and it does. Yeah, so there's... And that's the thing, too, is just like... This date is from a couple days ago, but his crunch time number is 70% on twos, 49% on threes, and a perfect um, 100% at the foul line. That's just like... It's pretty is, good. Yeah, and they're 18 and 6, excuse me, in, in close games. That's the, the number I got wrong. Uh, so, yeah, I feel like you could easily... If, if someone votes Dame for first place in the MVP race, I'm not going to be mad about it. I would have him in the top three right now. I think LeBron and Embiid are going to fall off by virtue of the time they miss. And you're you're going to look at, I think it's going to be a Jokic-Giannis-Dame top three situation. Maybe Harden comes in and knocks Giannis off because of the voter fatigue factor. Did you catch my screen pan down there or were you looking away? I saw you pan down the screen. I didn't see what you did it for. Here, I'll do it again while I talk. 
Um, there it is. What time is there it? it is. Dame time. I have my Dame Time shirt on right now. Um, I think the, the other name who deserves to come up is Rudy Gobert. I don't think he's going to win. I don't think he should win. I think he should be on the back end of ballots. The Jazz have been the best team in basketball. He's the best player on that team. He is a defensive system unto himself. He is a incredibly impactful offensive player despite his limitations. He's Again, he's not going to win because this is a, a team with Donovan Mitchell and Mike Conley and depth of talent, but he's been the best player on the best team. And that typically garners some sort of respect in the MVP conversation. And unless you're talking to somebody from Utah right now, he's not mentioned. Yeah, that's that's totally fair. He's been, you know, he should be top 10 on the ballot this year. You could probably he should also be top make- five on the ballot, I would say. You think? I, well, I guess if you're not going to, if you think, if you're going to, exclude LeBron and Gobert by virtue of sample size, then yeah, that does seem fair. Yeah. Uh, who let's, well, let's stick with the MVP thing. Who's how, where's this question from Dustin Fife weakest statistical NBA MVP candidate. Oh, he might be talking throughout history, but I'm reading it as this year who would be your weakest statistical candidate. Hmm. If you look at advanced metrics, it's probably Dame. He's yeah, going to rank. Probably, it probably is. He's going to rank lower in those um, advanced metrics than a lot. And even, you know, when you're looking at BPM, uh, things along those lines, even Gobert could probably fall lower than that. But that's, those are the, those are the two that I would, that would probably stand out the most to me if we're considering them MVP candidates. The, the strongest statistical case is probably Jokic or Giannis. If we were to go to the flip side of that spectrum. Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. I'll, I'll, I'll go to the historical side of this question, I think. Um, and the, the answer that comes to mind right away is probably Wes Unselt, who won MVP and rookie of the year during his first season with the Baltimore Bullets in 1969 while averaging 13.8 points and 18.2 rebounds. Like he was a very impactful rebounder and defensive presence on a Baltimore team that won 57 games, but that team was loaded with Earl Monroe and Gus Johnson and Jack Marin and Kevin Lowry. Like there were a lot of talented players and I can't imagine an MVP candidate in today's NBA or really any time in the last few decades who would win while averaging under 14 points per game. Like not, not trying to take credit away from him, like incredibly underrated historical player, but that, that is always going to stand out as an anomaly. That and Derek Rose were the first two who came to mind. He wouldn't even, he wouldn't even win six man of the year by averaging 14 points a game. It feels like in this day and age. And that's not to say that like scoring should be necessary to win MVP because it shouldn't be. Um, see a couple minutes ago when we talked about Rudy Gobert. Um, but if you're talking about like purely from an advanced numbers perspective, like it's generally harder to thrive in those when you're not a scorer. Two Pelicans questions teed up here. The first one comes from Cade Hornack. Where will Lonzo Ball play next year? What do you expect his contract to look like? I think he's going to stay in New Orleans. I do. I think that the, the strides we've seen from him this year, the increasing on-court chemistry that he has with Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson all matter. And I would expect him to be back on a multi-year deal at like $18 million a year. Yeah, that's the $18 million is probably feels like the... I, so when you're a restricted free agent, you're... Go teams, it's almost prohibitive for other teams to go after you because they're tying up cap space in players that they're probably not going to get. Because when you want to bid on a restricted free agent, it means they're so valuable that you're probably not going to get them because his team is going to to match him. Uh, he has been, ever since he was first mentioned in trade rumors, he has been 
in Fuego, and that's amounted to you know basically the uh, the entire season at this point. We're shooting above you know since then forty percent from three, very very comfortably. So I I think when you look at what he does as a floor spacer, even if you don't like the way the jump shot looks, still his IQ as a passer, even though he can't run traditional pick and roll, and his ability to thrive as a team defender, and they've even put him in some tough one on one situations this year. My baseline would say if he signs for less than $17, $18 million a year, I'd be fairly shocked because he does feel like a player that another team with cap space will come in and pay just to see what happens. Is it the Knicks? You know, that could be a team. I would expect like the obvious answer. I would expect actually his his offer sheet to come in at like four eighty feels like the and I don't even know that might be low. You know, is there gonna be a team that comes in at over twenty million dollars a year? It it wouldn't shock me. I guess you do have to consider the teams that are going to have cap space. Uh, I don't think Charlotte's going to go after him, even though they have Lamelo in there. The Knicks, I think, will definitely be interested. Uh, are the Heat going to be interested? Probably not. Uh, Toronto could be sneaky if they get rid of Kyle Lowry. That would be a team to watch for me. If you know, he's another, another sneaky fun one is Chicago. They're just not going to have cap space though. After if they can find a way to clear it up, though, him, Levine, and Vucevic is a really fun core. Well, that's the so, but that's the other thing here is if he's not playing in New Orleans because you sh- you if you aren't going to match then you probably should have moved him at the deadline because yeah. I definitely think you would have gotten a first round pick for him. That's why you open up sign and trade scenarios, which is why Chicago might come into play if New Orleans really likes Larry Marketing. He can't be the only thing coming back to New Orleans because I think Lonzo Ball is substantially better at this point than him. It's just not even I know he's was not it, the most dynamic. Go ahead. Was it Magic Johnson the other day who said he was like the smartest point guard in the NBA or am I totally making that up? He did say that. He was also the guy that drafted him, so I don't know, you know, but he's look, I he's not the most dynamic point guard because I'm, I'm not endorsing that statement, uh, by the way. He his IQ is through the roof though, and you can look at the reads he makes and he's Yeah, but Chris Paul is alive. That's fair. Last too. I checked, Chris Paul exists. And I mean LeBron, you have to throw him in there. Yeah. He's basically a point guard. So Zion if I know. If I had to pick, which Zion's really good when he's in the ball. If I had to pick uh, a salary for Lonzo Ball next season, I'm going to say he comes in at 21 million. Wow. Okay. Is his, uh, if I had to pick a team, I lean Pelicans, but they're not. They're just not the sexy pick. If if you're telling me he's going to start on a different team, I'm going to say I'd like to say Toronto because it makes so much sense that they lose Kyle Lowry, but he's not going to Toronto. I'm going to say the Knicks. I think Lonzo Ball's a Nick next year. Dan, I've heard that we need to have hotter takes, though. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to say Lonzo Ball ends up on the Brooklyn Nets for forty million a year. It's illegal on so many levels. <laughs> if you had to pick, though, you still that you New Orleans. New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. And what was your salary for him? You thought Eight, I think eighteen a year. We'll see who's closer, Matt. If someone, if there's a team that you could envision coming to max him just out of nowhere, here's the max. I think it starts at like 27, 27 and a half. Um, depending on where the cap lies, is there a team? It's the Knicks, just, right? Yeah, it probably is the Knicks. I'm I'm trying to think of a uh, yeah, it probably is the Knicks. Like o- OKC is not going to just come out of nowhere with that. Or Toronto won't do that. They are going to have cap space, but now you have uh, RJ Hampton, Markel Fultz. You're starting this rebuild. You have Cole Anthony. I don't think you do that. It's a, and maybe that drives us nowhere. <laughs> Maybe that drives his market down. I mean, and also again, we're not even talking about sign and trade scenarios. Is there? I could see the Hawks. I mean, I you might mm-hmm. have a better gauge of the fit. Um, something built around John Collins, or if they really like Bogey, 
uh, if he starts to play better than he has, could be something. If they want to give up picks too, and New Orleans is like trying to straddle, and they like they really like. Uh, I have to be honest. I don't. I don't know what at this point you could tell me to convince me that John Collins shouldn't stay. So like, as soon as I hear that, I just kind of bulk. I agree with you, and he's in, he's improved defensively enough to where you can use him with Clint Capella now, yeah. and it makes a lot of sense. We have another Pelicans question, too. This one comes from Leandri. Is Stan Van Gundy the problem in New Orleans, or is it the front office that's hurting the Pelicans? I'm assuming he's just referring to their... They're coming off a pretty good win on Saturday night, in which Zion just ran the crunch time offense, by the way, which is, just do it. He doesn't even need a screen anymore. Steven Adams will come up to screen. He doesn't even need to use it, because he's just going to go through, guys. But they are 20 and 25. They're 14th overall in net rating, 7th in offense, 28th in defense and 30th in opponent effective field goal percentage. What, how do you, who do you ascribe the most blame to in New Orleans? Easily the front office. I look at the personnel that they have on that team and I wonder like how you're supposed to have a great defense. I look at the lack of shooters that they have around the centerpieces of this building effort and I wonder how they're supposed to succeed at a high level. And then I look at the improvement that Zion Williamson has shown throughout his sophomore season, and I wonder how you can possibly blame the coaching. Because he has gone within the course of the same season, coming off the shortest offseason in American professional sports history. And he has gone from not running any pick and roll and thriving only as an off-ball weapon to being like essentially a primary facilitator and offensive initiator and excelling at it. And that's not something that happens without quality player development and coaching. That's the, I mean, New Orleans was never going to be a title contender this year. Like even the most optimistic hopes were, Hey, this is a playoff team that might make a little noise in the first round. If Zion is as good as we think he is, which he is. And sure. It's been disappointing. But like the most important thing this team can do is have proper player development for their youngest contributors. Zion has developed into an absolute star and unstoppable force on offense. Lonzo Ball has developed enough that he looks like a good fit. Who can We can realistically see him coming back or generating a $20 million per year salary elsewhere. And that's what they needed to see. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you that it's the front office. It's just so weird to say like some of the things that are hampering them where it's, you know, give them more space to work with. And yet they're seventh in offense and they're 10th in half court offensive efficiency right now. Still, I think you can see it with Brandon Ingram at points, even with Lonzo ball a little bit when the ball is in his hands, they need more space to operate than new Orleans has given them. Zion apparently just doesn't need any space that he just doesn't, he's, he's fine as is. And so the, the decision to give up value for, and then extends Steven Adams looms, as big here, he's made their defense slightly better when he's on the court, but you're also probably working from a super low baseline. What you can probably criticize the coaching staff for, they give up an awful lot of threes and they are essentially just the worst team in the league at defending three pointers. Yeah, they are 30th overall. And that matches up with what I see. I'm actually surprised that they're not lower in opponent corner three point percentage. Um, it seems like they give up too many of those. That you can put on the coaching staff. Uh, they're also 27th in rim protection. And so if that's what you were thinking that Steven Adams was going to give you, you're, you're now, your port defending from beyond the arc and at the rim, it's not noise in both spots would be my argument. And I do ascribe that to the front office. There's a lack of wings. I don't know what type of flexibility. You weren't really working with any after the Steven Adams trade. That being said, did you need to make the Steven Adams trade? And I don't think he's the problem. 
but it seems like that prohibits them from doing so many other things and that their resources would have been better off going after more wing type players at this point and definitely giving more space to if Zion doesn't need it fine but Brandon Ingram Eric Bledsoe Lonzo Ball those are guys that I think really need it and perhaps you know going to Nikhil Alexander Walker more and Kyra Lewis is getting minutes maybe that changes a little bit and by the way Kyra Lewis I just haven't seen a ton of him this season super fast uh so watching that game against better just a blur so I do like this team but I'm with you I, I think the blame has to fall on the front office mostly here I just I look at the roster and I wonder how Stan Van Gundy could craft a top level defense. I mean, like, are you are you playing Lonzo Ball with Sindarius Thornwell and Josh Hart and James Johnson and Steven Adams? Okay, like, great, we solved their defensive issues and we're going to score twelve points a game. Like, what <laughs> what is he supposed to do there? There is so the one thing I will say is they are just going to run into some problems where I don't care about teams spending money, and I say that again, again, and again on the podcast because I feel like people focus. You know, everything is looked at through the team perspective. Um, I want players to get paid as much as they can, but you're in the situation where you've had to decide you've already paid Brandon Ingram. Then you paid Steven Adams. You took on Bledsoe's deal. Now you have to pay Lonzo Ball. All of a sudden Zion is extension eligible after next year. You don't have time to not be expensive. We're just going to be this cheap young team. And so you do have really tough decisions to make moving forward. I'm right there with you. Uh, let's go to, oh, we need to talk about this question. I feel like Idris Muhammad Kudeme. I hope I really didn't butcher that beyond reason. How do you think Zach Levine and Nikola Vucevic fit together? I love that fit. I think that it's a great mix of two, three level scorers who operate from different positions on the court and get their offense in different ways. And that you can very much build a contender around those two. I mean, Chicago doesn't have the pieces to build a contender around those two yet, but that is a great start. And they're both young enough to reasonably be a part of the finished product, assuming that they're working towards that from the current core. Yeah. I, and he makes life so much easier on Zach Levine, who hits just a ridiculous percentage on his tough looks, uh, 41.3% on pull-up threes this year, which he's taking 5.1 of those per game. And now, you know, he's not the best at operating in traffic, but he's gotten better at reading, making reads or passes out of double teams, I feel like, this year. And now that you have Vucevic spotting up from beyond the arc, almost always above the break, by the way, he's, he's, I think he's, I need to check this because I keep saying it, but I think he's top five in above the break threes made this year. He hasn't had that type of a one floor spacing assist, really, and not that he's necessarily throwing to, but that opens room for him. And when you're kind of looking at all the assists that he's thrown uh, this season, he like didn't have the, I guess you can count Patrick Williams as a big, if you want to, but like his, his three point assists and Larry marketing, maybe it's a bad example, but they weren't going to his centers is my point yeah. is he's assisted on three pointers for Larry marketing for, you know, uh, Kobe white, Patrick Williams. And now you have just Vooch in that weaponry. That's going to be huge for their offense. And he's also someone who can, this is Vooch now really act as the focal point if you want to work him from the elbows which is something that Wendell Carter Jr. I don't know that he was ever really given the opportunity to do that there but he just didn't develop into that type of player and even the floor spacer like this volume floor spacer you have that from Vooch now that's monstrous my question is what kind it looks like Thaddeus Young is back to the bench now uh they started Lowry next to Vooch in his first game in Chicago is that how you would continue rolling because that opens up minutes have Thaddeus Young more at the five where he's been annihilating opponents this year but then you also have daniel tice now as well uh so do you like it if it means you know more minutes for thaddeus young at the four like you do you want to see more thad 
Vooch minutes, or do you think it's right to bring him off the bench where, you know, theoretically, functionally, he should be able to, to play more minutes at the five? I think either way it works, as long as there's a defensive slant with the pieces around Levine and, and, and Vooch. Um, whether that's Dad coming off the bench or in the starting lineup. I mean, I think you can reasonably see lineups with insert point guard here, Zach Levine, Patrick Williams, Thaddeus Young, and Vooch, and just really lean into that that defensive forward mentality. But again, like I don't, I don't think that the pieces on this roster are the ones we're going to see when and if this is a, a hyper-competitive Bulls team. But to answer the first question, like I, I think we... We have to look at it from Vooch's perspective too. Where like we're looking at how this this twosome works together, and when was the last time he got to play with a hyper talented guard like Zach Levine, who is no longer a great scorer? Like he is in that elite scorer tier, and Vucevic has become a multi time All Star and a dominant offensive force while playing on a team notoriously notorious for the poor guard play and the clogged spacing that results from that front court long j- log jam they've had. He's not had an opportunity to show off what he can do with someone like Levine on the floor next to him, too. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point if you think about the guards that he's played with in Orlando. Just the, the spacing in general there, the fact that he's shooting as high a clip as he was from three. I mean, who's, maybe the, who's the best guard he's played with? Is it DJ Augustine? Is it Markel Fultz? Shelvin Mack, Jameer, maybe? Jameer Nelson? Hey, they made that graphic for Shelvin Mack. Yeah. One year. So, uh, this next question comes from Matt Lyons. Who is the best defender in the NBA according to the numbers? I have. I don't think you can decide defense just purely by by numbers. Would be my argument. But I mean, I based a, on NBA Maths DPS, it's Nikola Jokic. That's what I was going to say. Is defensive <laughs> point saved? Uh, Nikola Jokic. I don't want to talk about that again, though. <laughs> uh, Giannis is two. Matisse Thybul is three. Draymond is four, and Rudy Gobert is five. So there is some validity to that. I've, ESPN's deep. I'm just gonna. It's a question. I'm just answering it. Uh, ESPN's defensive real plus minus top five. Rudy Gobert one. Capella two. Paul George three. Miles Turner four. Christian Wood five. And then the other one I look at is defensive. Um, I didn't bring up the luck adjusted RAPM. Let me do that now, though. Uh, luck adjusted defensive real adjusted plus minus. Um, the top five in that, Jakob Pertl, number one, Cam Johnson, number two, Tobias Harris, number three, Jay Crowder, number four, Kemp Bazemore, number five. I wouldn't pick a best defender based off any of those, but just answering the question. I don't think that there's any one single number metric you should ever turn to just as the answer to a defensive question. But I think that if you are looking at all of them in conjunction and and weighing the the flaws and upsides of each individual metric, that I think that you might land on a case for Ben Simmons, especially when you look into like what Christian and Arsu has done with versatility indexes and stuff. Like not only is he going to show up really high in all of the, the impact metrics, but you're also going to see that he's taking on the widest variety and toughest assignments. So if you're like crafting an article where you're not doing any film study and just basing it on every single defensive metric available under the sun, I think you would probably land on Ben Simmons. Yeah, uh, Hammer. Yeah, Gobert's not always going to come up in those stats, but I, th- I think that I, I think you're right there. We'll move on to a couple other ones before we wrap up. This is this was asked before the call was made, but it, it turned out to be topical. Has Al Horford been a top twenty NBA center this year? That comes from D. Uh, he's not playing the rest of the season. Oklahoma City told him to take his ball and go home, and that they promised to find a trade for him next year. Uh, 
My, my snarky answer is that a top 20 center in the NBA would be able to play both ends of a back-to-back. Okay, but they're very clearly not playing him. I know, I know. For a reason. He's been good. He's been good for Oklahoma City. Like, no doubt, he's he looks rejuvenated to the point that it would have been feasible for him to be traded or agree to a buyout and join a contender and actually make an impact. Um, I don't know. I, I struggle with the top 20 thing just because – of the availability and because he's getting an extended number of touches and looks by virtue of the lack of talent around him. I would say he's been right there if he hasn't been in it because he was his, his it's a reasonable question. Yeah, I don't, I didn't, your answer was that I could not believe your facial expression when the question is asked. I know he's 34. I know he was averaging under 30 minutes per game. He was shooting 51% on twos, 36.8% from three, 3.4 assists per game, 14.2 points. You know, I'm sad that we don't get to watch him the rest of the year. I, I wish that he would have been moved now to a contender because I think that he can actually really help one. This question is tied of uh, is tied of tied to that. It's kind of tied to that, but and I lost it. Oh, Nambu asks, without Jokic and Embiid, who what are the top five centers in the league? So we're assuming Joel Embiid and Nicole Jokic are one and two. I think that's fair. Rudy Gobert is clearly Gobert is definitely up there. Well, he's up there. Carl yeah, Anthony Towns. Okay. Uh, what do we consider Davis? He spends most of his time at the four, but in the playoffs, he's going to close at the five. I still don't really think of him as a center. All right, so we'll remove him. Then Bam has to be yeah, up there. I was going to say Bam Adebayo is definitely in that. Um, is, a, is a healthy use of Nurkic in there? No. Nope. No, you don't think so? I thought the Blazers should have maybe considered moving him based off how he played, but I understand he was still working with it. Vucic, oh, Vucevic is up there. I think you and have to And then I think you're between like Clint Capella and Jonas Valanciunas maybe. I don't know. Does Jonas Valanciunas play enough? I haven't even looked at how many minutes per game. I think he does. So, so I would definitely have, question. I would have, I would have a Towns, Bam, and as the locks and Gobert, and Gobert. As, as a lock. I think I would right say there. Gobert, ta- Gobert, oof. Bam second, Towns third. I think. No, I, I would have. Oh man, that's a really tough one. I think Gobert has to be third this season. In a nutshell, I probably would take Towns over these. I think your order is correct. If you're asking me which one I want moving forward, it's still going to be Towns. I think he is so that's good. Fair. A, na- a name we didn't mention. Who might? I know he's been injured this year at points, but Christian Wood could sneak his way into this conversation. Miles this Turner, se- maybe. Miles Turner is actually a really good one. Jared Allen, even Rashawn Holmes this year, definitely up there. Could be in there. You mentioned Jonas Valanciunas already. I'm going to say for my last two, I'm just for the hell of it to pick. I'm going with. I'll say Vooch. He's in my top five after that, and then I'm going to go with. Am I going to go with Rashawn Holmes right now? That might be the guy for me. He's not. Top five center seems stick with Valanciunas. Top five seems so egregious for Rashawn Holmes, but or Christian Wood is up there. My four I would just like to note though. that we didn't mention Al Horford. But that was a top twenty. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. Top seven. I know, right I know. I'm I'm still being snarky. Uh, I don't. I can't settle on a fifth. My top would be Gobert, Vooch. Bam out of bio and Carl Anthony Towns. I think there's a lot of different ways that you could go with fifth. Unless we're, you know, when you're doing these exercises on the spot, you could always leave off somebody, but I don't think that we 
we mentioned everyone that I think could be a contender for that. Chris Boucher, maybe. <laughs> well, I just assumed he was in a tier of his own. Here's a quick one for you. You know what's, um, what's sad that we didn't mention though is DeAndre Aiden. Imagine if he had developed to the point that he was in that conversation as good as his son's team already is. I had uh I'm I had him as a top ten center, I think, entering the season, and he's just been all over the place this year. I, was I right still there believe with- in him, but but yeah, he's been disappointing by the standards I had set for him. Here's Maybe a quick Evan one for Mobley you. Already. <laughs> That's like an insult to the center death in the league. Right now. There's a ton of it. Uh, we mentioned Clint Capella, though, right? He has to be in that we discussion. Did. Yeah, we did. Okay. Uh, Let's get to this next question here. How far apart are Chris Paul and Kyle Lowry if you were to rank them among NBA players? Caleb Manser asks. A lot of ranking questions today. Um, I mean, I, th- I think Paul is still ahead, and that's not an insult to Lowry. It's just a compliment to Chris Paul. I, we're, we're, we're talking about Chris Paul as like a top 15 guy. We're talking about Kyle Lowry as what, like a, a top 20, 30, 25 guy? Yeah. So I think like. His peak? Yeah. The answer Sorry, is however much separation you think exists between those tiers. Here's a question that was born for you. RJ Barrett projections for next year. Um, I'm trying to decide where on the MVP ballot he should fall. <laughs> uh, this question comes from rocket ship emoji, by the way. Oh, uh, nice. That's a creative name. <laughs> at, but is at it a Microsoft Isle. paint emoji or is it like a true emoji? No, it's, it's a true emoji. So it's not Paul Pierce. No, no, I was hoping. I was hoping he was listening to the show. Um, oh, we have a. If you will, let's tackle this RJ question, Patrick. Your question is going to be next. Shout out to you for asking the first live question of this episode. Rough dad yeah, in Hollywood. Not. It is. Yeah, it is. But uh, here's. Is so let is. me give you. Let me give you RJ Barrett's numbers this year: seventeen point six points, six point two rebounds, three point one assists, forty-seven point seven percent on twos, thirty-four point two percent on threes. That is. The the thirty four point two percent just seems so low because he's been shooting basically forty five percent for most of the season since since his first five games he's at thirty eight percent from three for the year uh, forty one games. But you so, know what the most impressive number of all is is the two turnovers per game. Like he's taken on these extra responsibilities without committing those turnovers, and I think that's a big deal. But to answer to answer the question, I think we're looking at like fairly similar per game numbers, maybe a slight jump in assists, just with fewer touches and, and better shooting percentages, because ideally New York is going to continue to flesh out the number of offensive options that it has around him. When you factor in an, an incoming rookie, a, a version of Obi Toppin, who's probably featured more prominently in the rotation, uh, Mitchell Robinson continuing to grow and hopefully actually staying healthy. Uh, I, I don't think we're looking at RJ Barrett as like a, a 20 to 25 point per game score. I think we're still seeing those like, 16 to 18 points just in more efficient fashion. Yeah. The things that I'll be watching is one, can his three point clip sustain? And we know most of those are just going to be off the catch, but can he do anything with his off the dribble jumper, his floater, his mid range game? He's getting to the rim less than he did last season, but finishing better. Can you up your free throw attempt rate? I think there's, that's going to be the difference. The swing factor for him is, can he do something else than he's doing now? That's huge. Uh, because if you want him to be your North star for the future, and I think he's more likely to be that than Julius Randle, just because he's younger. I will also say the improvements he has made defensively away from the ball this season, I think have sort of flown under the radar. You don't see it when you look at his counting stats, steal percentage, block percentage down. He He's just better on that end of the floor. So we're looking at, I, I we're still looking at someone with an all-star trajectory, potentially. I think it's fair to throw him in there. Would I expect that in year three? No, I wouldn't rule out 20 points per game, 
maybe get to four assists around there, and we just see it come more efficiency, uh, more efficiently in totality. Yeah, no, I, I'm right there with you. He's already one of the most improved players in the league this year. He might be. I don't know how I feel about sophomores winning it. I flip flop every year, so no one should listen to me. He might be three on my ballot. But Julius Randle's up there. You have Shea, but he's going to miss a ton of time. Jeremy Grant's there. Uh, you Patrick, are aware I'm never going to let you live that one down, right? That look good pick by you. I, I get lucky every once in a while. Volume shooters are going to hit one eventually. Um, so Patrick has two questions in the room. We already covered this one, but how crazy am I for thinking the Suns healthy are solid pick for making the finals? Uh, since you weren't here at the beginning of the episode, Patrick, I will say I had them ranked as the, the second best contender in the Western Conference behind a full-strength Lakers. And if you told me that the Lakers are going to be dealing with these injuries the rest of the year when Anthony Davis just doesn't look right, even when he's playing in the postseason, the Suns are next up for me. And I had them as a very hesitant fourth, but we kind of established that we were looking at the Jazz, Suns, Clippers, Lakers, and Nuggets as like a 1A, B, C, D, and E kind of thing because they're all, they all deserve to be considered in that mix of legitimate finals contenders. He also asked how uh, – this is the same question he asked. What's next for Boston? They're not going to get any of the prime buyout candidates. We've seen that. I – I think Evan Fournier, and I mentioned this at the top too, addresses a ton of needs for them. Uh, just better ball handling, another score, a good floor spacer, someone who can generate his own shot. I don't anticipate he'll ever be part of the closing unit when he's fully healthy. And I do think I love Robert Williams III. Everyone's talked about how underrated he could be as a passer, his defensive mobility. I, I feel a lot less confident in their big band rotation now that they have Mo Wagner and Luke Cornett. I don't even think they've... Re- you know, they haven't uh, that I've seen released either of those guys. And then Tristan Thompson, I, Daniel Tice just feels like a, a really big loss for them. I totally agree with you. Um, I, I guess it's worth noting that everyone's like quick to jump to Tristan Thompson's defense after it was reported that like no one wanted him there. So that's good for team chemistry, I guess. But yeah, I, I think I, I don't know that we're going to see any like big buyout moves or additions for them. I think this is very much the roster they're going to attempt to compete with, which troubles me a little bit because if Kemba Walker isn't the Charlotte Hornets version of Kemba Walker, that is a big blow. And I'm not sure how consistently he can play at that level at this stage. So that coupled with the shakiness of the big man rotation just makes me a little bit worried about them in the playoffs. Even if we've seen Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum elevate their games and and we know that Brad Stevens can give them some sort of addition from the bench in a playoff series. If anyone else in the room has any questions, please feel free to throw them in there. We'll answer. We are wrapping up shortly, but we have a couple quick ones to get here. I thought this question was interesting from from Jarf. What is the true definition of a wing? I always thought a 3-4 was a wing, but I keep hearing people referring to two guards as wings, so are twos also wings or just guards? I think he encapsulated how positionalist the NBA has become, right. where now even like wing designations are blurry. I think the way I... Th- think about it is who you guard. So if you're guarding a primary ball handler, then I tend to think of you as a guard. If you're guarding people who often operate off the ball or are lining up on the wings, then I think of you as a wing. And if you're typically guarding on the interior or those floor spacing big men who run pick and pops or spot up in the corners or above the break, then you're a big. So I I think you always hear coaches talk about how your position is determined by who you guard. And I think it extends to those more overarching definitions. I do look at, I weigh defensive matchups a lot too. And where I think Aaron Gordon might be a good example of this. 
he might be better off used as a big where it's just a four or five role, but he's defended so many wings, maybe even used him like a wing on offense. And so you don't need to look at height designation specifically. David Nawaba is a wing. He's six four, but you just look at the defensive assignments he's described. Uh, and if if his offense isn't going to be high usage enough to tilt it in any one direction, that's what I would look at when classifying players as as wings or not. So you can be, you know, RJ Barrett might be a good example. Is he a wing or a guard this year? I think looking at his defensive matchups, he's probably Even closer more to a guard. As, yeah, more as a guard. Yeah, but he's 6'7". I, but, but I think it's important to note that like, whenever you are attempting to sort players into a, a limited number of buckets, be it the five traditional positions or those three more overarching descriptions, you are going to have people who fit into multiple buckets. That's just an inevitability. Like, What would you call LeBron James? I, he's a something, a thingamabob. Right, is that fair? right. What is Zion, right? It just like, there, there are some where it just defies that description. Fred asks, are there any notable two-way players tearing up the G League that should see their NBA court time significantly increase for non-playoff clubs? I would argue one person who has not seen, a Jordan Poole, we're probably going to see more of him uh, with Golden State. We've already hinted that they've already shown that. I think Jeremy Lin needs to just be in the NBA at this point. Um, Rajon Tucker, that's going to be another name. He has absolutely just dominated the the uh, the G League this year. Um, didn't shoot too well on his threes, but it looks like we're going to see him get more minutes. Kevin Porter Jr., not on a two-way. I'm not even going through just two-way guys here, uh, by the way. KBJ's Jared Harper it up in the, in the big leagues now. Yeah, so... Uh, but he, I didn't even realize he spent 15 games in the G League this year. Uh, Paul Reed, that's who everyone wants to hear Paul something Reed's from. Paul Reed's been I fantastic. I don't know that he's ever going to see minutes because of the team that he's he's on and them chasing a playoff spot, but Jared Harper has been uh, a scoring revelation, which I think is, you know, a lot of people knew that that's what he could be. So those would be some names. that There's, a guy, who's, uh, there's a guy who's averaging 13.1 points and 3.5 assists while shooting 49% from the field, 46.2% from three, and 86.7% from the line. Does that sound like an NBA guy to you? Sounds like an NBA guy to me. Yeah, Grant Riller. It's time to give him a chance. <laughs> I was waiting for some. I thought it was. I didn't know who it was going to be. I should have known it was going to be Nate Walter. Uh, or not you Nate Walter. You, you should have known it was going to be Grant Riller. This will be our last one. Uh, Christian Vasile. Do the Rockets have some positive stats which which we can build on? I will say, despite everything, for the season. They are 13th in points allowed per possession. That's a really good place to be. Deshaun Tate does all kinds of things on that side of the floor. Um, I I sort of, when I'm looking at them, I'm trying to look at their roster and see, are there players here that can be a part of the next iteration of the team that is good or of their rebuild? And Deshaun Tate stands out, can do stuff with the ball in his hands too. You'd like to see him hit more of his threes, obviously. Kevin Porter Jr., we just mentioned him. Going to need to see more of him. Christian Wood is we we considered him to put him in our top five cent, or at least I. He could be a legitimate centerpiece. Yeah, Uh, and after that, I think that's where you're probably getting kind of murky. I'm semi interested. He's on a one year deal. They don't have his bird rights, but Sterling Brown has been really good this year. I thought maybe I was wondering if he was going to get bought out to go to a contender, but he just might want to play 25 plus minutes per game on a fairly consistent basis. Those are the guys that I'm I'm watching most for this team. Did I leave anyone out, Adam? I guess John Wall has a default to here. Yeah, but he's old enough that I don't really view him in that same light. I think the tricky thing here is that those guys have looked really good, especially 
Kevin Porter Jr., in my opinion. Like that G League stint really helped him. He looks like he's playing with far more control and kind of dictating the tempo rather than allowing it to come to him. But as is the case with everyone else, like we have to be careful with this evaluation. It's sort of like an offshoot of what we see at the end of seasons where you can see those guys come out of nowhere because they're afforded opportunities and because teams are operating with various motivations and you just don't know what you're going to get from an effort level on a day-to-day basis, which is one of our concern, which was one of our concerns about Christian Wood when he was coming off of that stellar run at the end of his time with the Detroit Pistons. Like, is this legitimate? And I think we're sort of seeing a similar situation with Houston right now because this roster is bad. And there are a lot of players getting minutes who shouldn't be getting minutes in a competitive NBA rotation. So like how much of it is it is a product of opportunity that isn't going to be available going forward and how much of it is legitimately improved quality play with Jay Sean Tate and with Kevin Porter Jr. And with Christian Wood, I think I lean towards the legitimacy end of that debate. I'm not quite sure on KJ Martin yet. Um, but that has to be encouraging just that Houston deservedly feels like it has at least a few legitimate pieces on the current, whatever you want to call this roster. <laughs> low key. So me, or maybe not. So it's not really that low key. Yeah. I mean, look, Kenny Martin jr. Has been, you know, his three ball this season, like an actual rotation minutes has helped. So maybe look to him. If you're looking for a one positive number to pinpoint, this lineup actually makes sense on paper, does it not? John Wall, Daniel House, Sterling Brown, Jay Sean Tate, Christian Wood. Would you say that lineup sure. makes sense on paper? They are outscoring opponents by 22 points per 100 possessions. And they have 101.3 defensive rating, 123.3 offensive rating. The now, my rub, follow-up question is like over what, like seven minutes? It's 73 possessions, so you might, you're might you not like too far off. So yeah, that's pretty accurate. Uh, the other thing I will say, though, this is 416 possession sample size. When Christian Wood plays without Harden, Oladipo, or P.J. Tucker, so players who are no longer with them, obviously, the Rockets have a plus 3.1 net rating on the season with a terrible offense and a fantastic defense. I mean, I think Christian Wood legitimately might be that good. I guess, okay, so my follow-up question to you is... This time next year, ideally, we've seen a healthy version of Christian Wood for a prolonged period. He's going to be viewed as a top X player. Oh, in the entire league? In the entire league. I mean, is he? Is, if he's playing at this level, is he an all-star next year? 22 points, 10 rebounds, shooting 38% from three, 62.2% on twos. I'm gonna. I'm going to go outside the top thirty here because I think he, he would then make the Rockets like better than they'll actually will be. And I'm not sure the ball is. I, I don't know. He does so much stuff one on one now. Thirty was the number in my head. Just so you know. thirty to thirty five feels right. Here's. I'm gonna. I'm gonna throw this back at you. He's on a shorter deal. He's he's twenty five. Turns twenty six in September. This time around the trade deadline next year, there's a year and a half of Christian Wood left at a bargain. If you're the Rockets, are you looking at this as we want to pay him or is he going to get moved? Because it's just the, it's not, look, I, I think he's young enough to be a part of the next team, but they're so all over the place that if they don't have the blue chip cornerstone to pair with him, I don't know what you do. So it's a twofold question is one, is he that guy or are you more inclined to move him before his next contract up? And at this moment, let's say over the off season or before next year's trade deadline, 
what type of value are you looking at for Christian Wood on the trade market? Should you well, decide? I mean, based on the current Rockets regime's previous moves, looking specifically at the totality of what they ended up getting for James Harden, I would assume for Christian Wood they'd get like a twenty forty one heavily protected second round pick. Another illegal thing, but that's a good spicy take. I like it. <laughs> you're in the you're in the right space. Look, is it? They're not going to move him. I don't think. I think he's young enough, and he. They they took a chance on him already, and it's paid off when he's been healthy enough to be on the court. And I, you, I think that there's there's going to be loyalty from both ends on that. I keep him just because you need good players on the team, and he yeah. really, if you can have a top thirty to thirty five guy, just keep him on the team. If you're going point. to trade him with a year and a half left, you're probably looking at a young player and two first round picks. Uh, oh, Patrick said in the chat, top thirty five to forty five. That's you know, I think that range is totally reasonable. What it's all right. Here's let's go the opposite way. Oh, and first of all, I think he gets you more for the. Uh, I I think he gets you more than Vooch does on the trade market, just because of the type of players they are. He's a little bit more, not as good of a passer, more dynamic though with the ball in his hands. Mm-hmm. I think you can say. Uh, do you see a path for him to be an All Star next year or top twenty five, top twenty guy? Is that like a ceiling he actually has? I think so, but I, it, it feels like it depends on the pieces they put around him. Because if you are on one of the worst teams in the Western Conference, you have to put up some massive numbers to enter that conversation. And Houston is going to be one of the worst teams in the Western Conference next season, unless something ridiculous happens in the offseason. So I, I would say that there probably isn't that realistic a path next year, but I expect him to play at an all-star caliber level. Do you have anything else to hit before we mosey on out of here? I think we got to a lot. I'm proud of us. Thank you. Thank you all for listening and for everyone who straggled in and out. Uh, this was our least successful locker room that we've ever had. Our egos have been damaged after having dozens of people in here. The shout out to week. Patrick for sticking around yeah. for so long and asking some good questions. Yes, we appreciate you, Patrick, and anyone else who has said again, straggling out. Remember, we do this every week at 4 o'clock. Um, maybe we'll bill it as an actual ask me anything. Maybe that was the turnoff. We thought if we isolated the topic, it'd be different, but we'll, we're going to, you know, fuck around with this and fiddle with it as we, as we see fit. Uh, Sundays are tough in here per Patrick. That is something for us to, to consider, particularly when you think about football season, you know, just like down the line, uh, until next time though, please, please, pretty please remember to rate review, subscribe, hardwood knocks, wherever you're getting your podcasts. Um, we have all the follows that'll be in our bio on YouTube, on your podcast player, fo- follow us. We're all over the place, including Sports Math Network at sports underscore at the underscore sports underscore math. But until next time, we leave you with a shout out to the one, the only future all star, apparently, according to Adam Frommel, and worth at least three first round picks post 2040, Christian Wood. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran. Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.